Dan Perry is a former top editor of the Associated Press, who at various times oversaw news coverage of the Middle East from Cairo. He also covered Europe and Africa, and he did that from London. He was also the bureau chief in Jerusalem and chairman of the Foreign Press Association. He was there for the second intifada and the author of two books on Israel. Today, he serves as managing partner of New York-based Thunder 11, a PR agency, as well as writing political columns for Newsweek, the Jerusalem Post, and other publications. He analyzes world affairs for I-24 TV station in Israel. He was born in Israel, grew up in Philadelphia, and is now back in Tel Aviv, where he and his wife are raising two daughters. Welcome, Dan Perry. We're really happy to have you here on uh, Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Dan, thanks again for uh, being on the uh, on the show, on the podcast. Um, the reason I, I wanted to reach out to you to, to have this conversation about um, the Palestinian refugees was because of uh, almost a hallucinatory experience I had about uh, two weeks ago. Um, in the span of a couple of days, I was reading about um, the refugee camps in Jenin, which is uh, in the West Bank, for listeners that don't know. Um, then there were riots uh, in a Lebanese refugee camp uh, outside of Sidon. And then there was um, some sort of, a, as there always is, uh, action uh, in uh, refugee camps in Gaza. So all of a sudden, the refugee issue um, was in the headlines on a daily basis in three different places, Gaza, the West Bank, and Lebanon. And I have obviously followed this refugee issue for you know multiple decades. Um, I've seen refugee camps. I've been through several of them in the West Bank um, and, and in Gaza before it was turned over to Hamas. And I just thought it'd be really interesting to have an update for people who are interested in the Mideast regarding the refugee situation and the status of it, uh, what's happening. Um, evidently, there is a million and a half registered refugees with the United Nations uh, Relief Organization. Um, they're in 58 camps in uh, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem. Um, some of them have been there since 1950. So we're now going on uh, almost 75 years. And it would just be really interesting to get an update from you as to how you saw the situation currently in, in the various areas. Obviously, politically, um, Gaza has changed from several times from what it was uh, in after 1948. The West Bank has changed several times with the Palestinian Authority and the Oslo Accords in areas A, B, and C. Uh, Lebanon has also changed. Uh, Hezbollah has taken over basically the, the Lebanese government from the uh, Christian and Marianite uh, and uh, Druze factions. So uh, here we are 75 years later. What, do you, what are your initial thoughts? We'll go region by region. Uh, let's start with Lebanon. Um, why are the refugee camps in Lebanon? Uh, why are the refugees not integrated into the Lebanese uh, population? What does Lebanon do to keep the, the, the Palestinian refugees in the camps from uh, citizenship and functioning in the economy? Well, um, taking just a bit of a step back, you, you, you were asking for an update on this issue. And I think uh, 
the the main problem is that there is not that much to update. The refugee situation has been static uh, since the 1948-49 uh, war, essentially, uh, and in, in since the years slightly thereafter when these refugee camps uh, were being set up. Now, the first thing you have to understand about the Palestinian refugee situation is that almost none of the refugees thus defined uh, still living fit the mold of what most people think when they think about the word refugees. These are at this point not people who are displaced, but descendants of people who were displaced. And yet, um, by some estimates, by some registrations, uh, including uh, some United Nations related bodies, currently there are 6 million people considered Palestinian refugees or just about, which is more or less half the people in the world who consider themselves Palestinians. Uh, you, you ask about Lebanon. Well, uh, the Lebanese government, such as it is, and it's an extremely volatile and unstable situation that can barely be defined as a government, yeah. but the state of Lebanon has never granted citizenship to the Palestinian refugees, they, which makes it very difficult for them, um, uh, unlike in most places, actually, uh, to, to not live in the refugee camps. It means they're denied to, to different extents uh, access to education and healthcare and state services. Uh, and it obviously makes them, you know, even more restive for practical reasons uh, than they would be otherwise, just because of the general bitterness of their ancestors having been expelled from what they consider to be Palestine. Why does Lebanon do this? Why does an Arab country do this to people who are Arabs? That's a fascinating question. Lebanon's case in particular uh, is informed by the fact that the country is a mix of ethnicities that have throughout its history been at loggerheads. Uh, you mentioned Maronite Christians who had thought they would be in control of Lebanon, but then they discovered to their dismay that there are Shiite Muslims, Sunni Muslims, Kurds, and on top of that arrived several hundred thousand Palestinian refugees who today I think their descendants number three or four hundred thousand about 10% of the population, they don't want them there. The Maronite Christians don't want more Muslims and the Palestinians who arrived in Lebanon are mainly Muslims. Uh, and beyond that, Lebanon, uh, like other Arab countries, uh, has used the refugees as a pawn uh, in, uh, in, in a conflict with Israel, essentially, keeping the issue alive as best they could uh, for leverage against Israel to besmirch Israel rightly or wrongly. I mean, they were expelled, many of them. Uh, and, and so forth. Uh, you know, and many of the refugees themselves are eager to uh, retain a certain difference of identity from the countries they arrived in because they are Palestinian nationalists who want to remain Palestinian. And, you know, they pass, not all of them, but, but many of them, pass the identity down from generation to generation such that, you know, Palestinians born a few years ago in these, in, in, in these countries tend to not say I'm Lebanese, they say I'm Palestinian and I'm here temporarily. Yeah. Um, is this right or wrong? Is a value judgment uh, that, that, that's, that's difficult for me as a non-Palestinian and non-Arab to make? Uh, I think for any of us, it's, there's not necessarily a right and wrong here. Uh, there is a great awkwardness um, because Dan, the world... Go ahead. Dan, how, could there not, how could there not be a wrong when it comes to granting citizenship and economic um, rights, uh, even if you don't grant citizenship the, to, let's say, for some reason, to the to the Palestinian refugees. You know, there was a wonderful movie about uh, four or five years ago 
called a Sufra about uh, these Palestinians in the refugee camp who wanted to open a food truck. And they just wanted to support themselves. The, the women were not working. The men were not working. Of course. You're true. laughing. It was, it was a wonderful movie. Oh, it was, it's absurd. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. I would never justify that. I, I didn't mean that wasn't wrong. I meant no. the idea of maintaining uh, with a vehemence that might seem to some like fanaticism, national identity that no longer seems relevant because you're four generations in Lebanon, for God's sake. And it's yeah. 10 miles north of where your family was expelled from. I mean, that that is not something I can say is wrong. Okay. Uh, for Lebanon, for Lebanon to not give them uh, basic services is not just uh, wrong. It's, in my view, a crime. Now, whether they should have figured out a workaround to let them live comfortably in Lebanon for as long as they must, but without giving them citizenship. Exactly. You know, I mean, yeah, I agree. That's what they should have done. But the citizenship issue uh, is complex because there is an argument that says that if you just give them all citizenship, you've solved Israel's problems for it. And, you know, you're encouraging the Palestinians to give up on their Palestinianness, And that would be wrong. I mean, I, I can see that. It's, it's essentially... Uh, the Arab countries uh, uh, <laughs> rushing to the aid of Palestinian nationalism by denying the Palestinian citizenship. It's a bit odd and extremely awkward, but there's a certain twisted logic to it. Um, but I, I don't think we need to be naive. I mean, they largely did this uh, just simply in order to use as a cudgel against Israel, obviously. And the, the people who suffered were the Palestinian refugees. Now, the refugee camps are, you know, their, their own story, uh, even beyond all of this. I mean, like you have the Armuk camp in Syria. It's essentially a shantytown. All of them at this point are misnamed as camps. Yes. I've been to a few, and not one is anything that looks to like a regular person using standard <laughs> English as a camp. It's right. shantytown. Uh, and some of the shantytowns are actually, you know, I mean, they're not nice, but, but at this point, they're fairly well put together, but it's yeah. probably anything that you would want to live in. Um, most of the people who stayed there simply lack the funds to, to, to move out, but some have. I mean, not all of the six million so-called refugees are living in camps. Uh, so the people in the camps, generally, the ones who still stayed there generation after generation are poor. And from poverty, um, I mean, poverty begets radicalism and bitterness, and that is why um, uh, you frequently see terrorism emerging from the camps. And in particular, uh, uh, you know, the Janine camp is among the more miserable, and that is certainly a hotbed of, of militant activity against Israel. Okay, let's talk about. Okay, let's let's talk about that. You since you switched to Janine, which is really really interesting. Okay, people have to completely understand that Jenin is an area controlled by the Palestinian Authority. I believe it's an area A. Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes? Okay. Yes. So that 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 quote camp is no is not in a sovereign nation of Lebanon, um, which has, you know, its own, as you said, dysfunctional but real government. Um, it, that is in fact an area that, that after Oslo was controlled by uh the Palestinian Authority. Um so how could there possibly be a, quote, refugee camp in an area that is governed by the Palestinian Authority that Israel supposedly, you know, has limited uh, governance over? That, that, that's more confusing than the Lebanon situation to me, which I, you know, 
couldn't understand, but I can't understand why there would be a refugee camp in, the, in, in Area A, the Palestinian Authority controlled area. Well, the simple answer is that, uh, I mean, the, there was a lot of displacement of people during the 48, 49 war and also the 67 war. Uh, and uh, Palestinian, the Palestinian narrative holds that the people displaced need to go back to where their families originally were. Now, by and large, the people in the refugee camps uh, within uh, the major Palestinian cities under the control of the Palestinian Authority, which is not really a government because Israel's actually in charge, but this autonomy government, um, are people not from that area. So the people in the refugee camp, so-called refugee camp, uh, uh, in the Janine area, were not originally from Janine. They arrived there from somewhere else, maybe the Galilee, what is now Israel. And the Palestinian narrative says that they got to return to where their families came from. Um, that is one reason why they retain their status of refugees as opposed to seeing themselves as, you know, people of Janine. Although I think at this point, many, probably most kind of do. But, but the narrative is that the refugees, because they're not from the Janine era. Moreover, uh, to repeat myself, it's not a camp. It's just a shantytown. Extremely in a Janine's case, condensed and packed, a uh, warren of, of, yeah. of basically, uh, you know, in, in within, uh, you know, the city of Janine, essentially. Um, it's just the slum. And the Palestinian Authority, uh, putting aside the waste and, and corruption and, and, and all the rest of it, doesn't have the money to, to fix this problem. Not really. Um, on, on top of which, uh, it is a bit of a misnomer to, to, to believe that the Palestinian Authority truly controls these areas. Uh, areas A, which are the major cities in West Bank, Janine, Tulkarim, Nablus, Ramallah, Hebron, and Bethlehem, essentially, are disconnected islands surrounded by Israel. Uh, the, the entry and exit from them is controlled by Israel. Israel controls the entire West Bank in terms of entry and exit, the currency is Israel's. The overriding legal system is Israel's. And whenever Israel wants, it enters these areas and engages in arrests and you know applies uh, its own laws as it sees fit. So it's very far from independence of a kind that, uh, that, that, that can be seen as a state, uh, which has not absolved them from building nicer houses for instead of the refugee camps. Uh, rather than siphoning the money away to secret accounts in Switzerland, as was known to have happened in some cases. It's just a god-awful mess uh, that has been created here, and the conflicting narratives uh, don't really help. You know, I'm reminded of one thing, and this really does address your question direct directly. Uh, I was the AP bureau chief in, in uh, Israel slash Palestine. Uh, in 2001, during the uh, Taba talks. Ehud Barak was still the prime minister. On the table was, a, was you know, a, a deal that I think a distant observer would think was not unreasonable. The Palestinians were offered 100% of Gaza, 90 to 95% of the West Bank, some what was then thought to be a face-saving arrangement in Jerusalem. It was not even close to what they wanted because uh, there was no right of return for refugees from elsewhere. There was or hardly any. And the borders, you know, they wanted 100% of the borders, not, you know, 90 some percent. I get that. But I mean, I probably would have accepted that deal. 
I'm going to say, because it would have resulted in, despite not having control over their airspace, a Palestinian state that had sovereignty and independence. Uh, Israel didn't agree to take in the refugees, but it, there would have been compensation, almost certainly. Yeah. And we went to the refugee camp near Bethlehem, um, and we talked to refugees. Most of them came from areas that were, you know, as the crow flies, 15 miles away, places like Lod in Israel. Uh, but it's the same country from by their own reckoning. Both are Palestine. Part of it became Israel. And it's like an hour's walk away. Yeah. They just have to suffice mm -hmm. with compensation and with living in Bethlehem and not Lod. And we had people telling us, I will never accept this. We must go back to Lod, where none of them, which none of them have ever seen. Right. And we had one guy tell me, I will sacrifice all my children and all my grandchildren so we can be in Lod and not Bethlehem. Now, again, I don't feel it's for me to judge, but I know that I wouldn't be taking that position. And I could see where some people would view that position as uh, some version of fanaticism. Uh, and yet, that is what years and years of the Nakba narrative uh, and the grievance narrative have wrought. Uh, you might argue uh, this particular refugee was just argue, was just negotiating hard, but but I had the sense that he really felt it. No, I believe that. I believe actually that really that. believed as they wave around these keys from the homes that no longer exist. They, they want to go to Lud and go with the key to a pile of, best case scenario, a pile of stones, but really not even that. And that's where they have to be. Now, this confronts everyone with the real challenge if we ever reach a day when there will be a two-state solution. Because if you have these people who will, under no circumstances, accept it and insist on moving back to Israel, then I don't know what you do. Because the logic of Israel taking what is undoubtedly a strategic risk and pulling out of the West Bank one day and it really is a military risk, is demographic. So they can stay Jewish, essentially. They're not going to accept these Palestinian refugees because of the 75, 80-year-old, in the best-case scenario, and more likely it'll be, at that point, a 120-year-old claim. Uh, and it, 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 you know, it upsets a lot of Israelis because... The, um, other, the other reason it may have upset a lot of Israelis is because I don't think everybody totally understands that the refugee crisis is real and the Nikbo was real, but there was also a massive population transfer from Morocco and Iraq and Iran and Syria and even Yemen uh, and Tunisia and Algeria. I mean, Israel is filled with uh, the Mizrahi Jews from the Middle East that were, some were forced out of their homes, some were, some were, homes were confiscated, monies were confiscated, some were just in fear for their lives. They were pogroms after the formation of Israel. So there are several million living Israelis that that were transferred from their Arab homeland, some of which had been to in, in, for a thousand years, um, and they are now absorbed into Israel. I mean, Israel even went to the point of, you know, risking lives to rescue uh, Falasha, Ethiopian Jews, uh, and brought into Israel, and that, of course, that it's it's perfect, and of course, they're discriminated against, and it's not all sweet and light. But they did go and rescue these people at the at the cost of uh, of life to to bring them to Israel. So it's not like uh, there there haven't been population transfers before. I mean, we've seen Kashmir and India, 
and 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 Pakistan. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't view it as a one-way street. I, I view it that there was a, the massive population transfers, and this is the result of that, and everybody should get on with it. Is that well, fair? Let me let me unpack that. Uh, I, unpack I, it. I was going to say that what upsets Israelis is that this is not seen in a way that is analogous to what you just mentioned. The population transfers that occurred in other parts of the world, generally post-colonialism and post-World War II, perfect example is between uh, you know the Muslim uh, uh, and Hindu parts of India that yielded Pakistan to which many Muslims moved and, and, and the remainder remained India, uh, where many Hindus that were living in what is now Pakistan moved to, and they're not running around with keys from what is now Islamabad and looking to reclaim their homes. They, as you say, they got on with it. Many Germans were expelled from places. Oh yeah. Were too, and you could say they deserved it for being German. There were a lot of injustices. And, uh, and, and, and there's a bit of a singularity with the Palestinian insistence on returning to their specific homes. Uh, that said, while there are some analogies to what happened with Mizrahi Jews, it is really imperfect and it risks, uh, uh, no, no offense to you, Jonathan, but it risks you can defend me. It's okay. To 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 to, to, <laughs> to, uh, to equate them because why very few very few of the Mizrahi Jews were kicked out of their countries. That's uh, that okay so really no, okay. There was an element of that. There was an they, they were made to feel uncomfortable. Sure, there was a lot of anti-Semitism uh, after uh, or anti-Jewishness uh, after the 1948 war. Certainly, they were compelled to leave, but they weren't expelled generally. Um, you know, by force of arms. Moreover, there was a, a real narrative of a coming home. I mean, Israel sent emissaries all over the Middle East to compel them to come. This massive Zionist enterprise, they arrived to join their brothers in, in the ancient Jewish homeland, come alive. Uh, that's very different from being funny. That's that, that, that's, not the, that's not what a lot of them tell me. That's I I don't dispute you because you know more than I do, and that's why you're, well, you're look, on the they, they that's complain. Really of course, I thought they would be really. I met so many that said they'd be really happy living the rest of their life in Casablanca, where they own you know some mansions, they own some factories, they they had a really nice life. Jonathan, and there's, they, there, they, there, they there were, are there are plenty. There are plenty of different stories. Okay. But, but by and large, the Jews that lived in Arab countries and in the Muslim world uh, in Israel are not looking to go back. Uh, there is some cultural nostalgia now and again. There's a lot of bitterness at the uppity European Jews who received them and looked down their nose at some of them because uh, they had European culture and they felt it was superior. There is a lot of, you know, uh, intra-Jewish uh, ethnic uh, rivalry in Israel. Um, but by and large, uh, the Israeli narrative is that of an ingathering of the exiles. Uh, and that is, I think, uh, qualitatively different from Palestinians who were desperate, not just desperate, as we've said, obsessed about staying in their homes, feel they were expelled and, and want to go back. Uh, and, That's a good point. Okay. I do think... I'm not a lawyer, but I stipulate your, your point, your difference is really accurate. It's very smart. I, I do have to say that I think in many cases... Uh, Jews who left the Arab world deserve financial compensation for leaving property behind. I mean, you know, if I own property, a, a Jew in France who chooses to move to Israel doesn't have his property nationalized. And that is what happened to Moroccan Jews who right. listened, you know, who, who listened to the Zionist emissaries and moved to Israel. 
these Jews left behind property in Iraq and elsewhere that uh, has, there's never been talk of compensation. I know. And, I mean, I, I think that's a soft bigotry of low expectations that we don't expect that in the Arab world. Why not? We expect <laughs> it in Romania. You know, my, my parents left Romania, the communists nationalized their house, and right now we're getting compensation for that. It took a while, but it's happening. And the same should happen with Iraqi Jews. Agreed. I couldn't agree more. I, I agree. Compensation is, is due. I, I, I believe in reparations, too. So let's talk about Gaza, because that's a that's a, a, a distinction without a difference. It's not the area A and it's not Lebanon or Syria or sovereign nation, but it kind of is. So explain to me um, how Hamas uh, could justify the existence of calling, you know, Khan Yunus and other refugee camps in Gaza refugee camps. That mystifies me more than Lebanon or the Area A, <laughs> because as far as I'm concerned, and I don't want to hear that they don't control Gaza. They control Gaza. They can, they, they can come and go from Egypt if they wanted to come and go from Egypt. If Egypt wants to- Well, actually, them. Egypt closes the border generally. I know, but that's my point. It's not Israel is the bad guy in, 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 in Gaza. They had an opportunity in Gaza. I have written so much about it to turn it into the Singapore on the Hudson to, to have a wonderful life for everybody. Now they're rioting in, they're, they're protesting the Hamas corruption and the Hamas uh, lack of lack of any economic opportunity. It's almost as Hamas has turned the entire, you know, 2.5 million Gazans into, into refugees to, to showcase you know Israel brutality rather than get on with their lives and build a prosperous state. Um, what's why would they do that? Why would the Gazans of all the people not tear down their refugee camps and say, you know, there is no such thing as a refugee camp. We're here in Gaza. This is our state. Explain that to me. Well, again, because the people living in refugee camps in Gaza are descended from oh, uh, that's right areas in Israel, generally Ashkelon and Ashdod. Um, Right. And their their narrative is that they want to go back and not stay in Gaza. They're not Gazans. They're from Ashkelon. Right. Um, but in the interim, till they go back, couldn't they like have a nice you know, life? So I you're, mean, you're, you're never going to get them to not call themselves refugees. They're refugees from Ashkelon. And this can continue for 100 generations and they'll stay refugees. But, but you know, maybe not because they'll mix in with other Gazans. Maybe then they call themselves all refugees. Uh, I think the semantics missed the point. Uh, they, they're going to use the refugee argument to, as, as a political cudgel against Israel. That's clear. Um, it, it, at, at some point, it's not worth arguing about. Uh, of course, Gaza is a miserable place. And much of the misery is imposed on a population by the Hamas police state, which is not just a corrupt dictatorship, but a theocracy on top of that. Yep. One cannot have a beer without risking major sanctions. So it's awful. But I can't absolve Israel uh, or e and Egypt for part of the awfulness because Israel and Egypt together basically blockade the entire strip from the land, sea, and air. Dan, There's Dan, stop. To go. Dan, 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 you, you Dan, you are so much more connected in Israel than I will ever be. But you and I, you have to know that if if they drop the barriers and they said, okay, it's a you know, there's no border crossings, do whatever you want, you know, within 20 minutes they would do nothing but import 
billions of rockets. Uh, Iran would send them every known munition. They would have mortars. They, they would have the concrete for their bunkers. You know, whenever they have cement, they don't build schools. They build tunnels to go under Israel to, to, to invade Israel. Oh, true. Why true. would anybody let them have an open border when they would spend 100% of that border in, in bringing weaponry in to destroy their, their sworn enemy, Israel? And they're open about it. They're not well, open and by about the way, that. Israel, That's in their charter. So why? It, they're not, they're not, it's not like Israel's doing this from some sadistic, torturous point of view. It's just survival. I agree with you that um, if, if they had complete access to the outside world, they would misuse it to build better rockets and attack Israel. That's, that's clearly true. Um, so fundamentally, the uh, presence of Hamas in Gaza and the fact that they're in charge of Gaza uh, is getting in the way of improving the lives of Gazans. Uh, but it's been about 16 years or whatever. Uh, it, it would appear that uh, increasing the misery upon Gaza is not, it's not, it's not successfully compelling the Gazans to overthrow Hamas. They don't have the power to do that. No, they don't. They don't. Have the power and, to do that. And, and and I'm not sure that keeping things as they are is a, a great solution for decades more because it is cruel and inhuman. So I would argue that um, that large, powerful countries like Israel and Egypt. And interested parties that have tons and tons of money, like uh, Saudi Arabia and UAE, and uh, outside players that uh, have good faith and uh, much reason to be involved, like the US and the EU, could all come together and maybe figure out a better solution than turning Gaza into a hellhole uh, near starvation where people have electricity for four hours a day. And that is uh, because they don't have the power to overthrow a criminal cabal of Islamist fanatics who have taken them over. <laughs> okay, we agree. It is a mess. <laughs> we told all I'm me saying we... is it's all oh, kinds of messed up, I and know. I'm not absolving anyone of responsibility here. <laughs> I'm not either. Okay. And that, who that, calls that, what that. A, a refugee is a little beside the point, frankly. It's just all miserable. Uh, and, and yes, even Hamas probably is misusing the refugee label to, to besmirch Israel and to keep the conflict going. And you'd say, how can it be their fellow Palestinians? It be, because they don't operate in tremendously good faith. Oh, God. Oh, so we're just going to go on another, you know, is, is, is this like some sort of Groundhog Day movie? We're just going to go on like this for the next foreseeable future? There's zero possibility or very little possibility of any sort of reform anywhere or, or people coming to their senses doesn't it looks like it's actually getting worse well you know uh what to do uh, uh to fix this problem is one of the world's huge unanswered questions um i think waiting for the palestinians to develop a civil society and a functioning democracy and liberalism and historical perspective uh, and a sense of contentment, all of which are required to be generous in coming to an accommodation with your enemies, you're going to be waiting a long time. The active party, I fear, has to be Israel. And in Israel, uh, you have a separate dynamic, which is Israel is in various ways, I fear, Jonathan, self-destructing. No, we know this. We we and, we, and if Israel continues totally self-destruction, millions and millions of Israelis will leave. The Israelis yep. who are currently running the liberal democracy 
And what will be left behind will be uh, a rump Israel of the religious and of the you know, nationalist fanatics and of uh, what is currently the economic underclass. Uh, there'll be nothing left of startup nation. It'll be a binational state, effectively binational, but not democratic because the Palestinians in the West Bank will be at that point not really separable from Israel and they won't have the right to vote. And I fear it'll be weakened and might be made mincemeat of by the Palestinians. So the real issue, the real issue is how to keep Israel from falling apart. Save Israel, beat back the forces of, uh, of extremist religion and uh, fanatical nationalism, restructure Israeli politics and have Israel more or less uh, very proactively change reality on the ground in West Bank and, 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 and in ways together with world um, collaboration and assistance, compel a change in Gaza somehow, or at least isolate Gaza to the point where uh, they, they see that the West Bank is working so well yeah. right now that the people really do rebel. Uh, none of that is happening right now because Israel is ruled um, by a government that is leading it off a cliff and doing absolutely nothing to change the reality vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. Now, by the way, I don't rule out that uh, the Saudi Arabians, for reasons of their own, strike some kind of deal with the Netanyahu government that, again, might change things in ways that are currently difficult to predict. If that happens, uh, that would be a bit of a, you know, black swan or whatever you call events that come out of nowhere and change reality. What would that look like? Well, uh, it could look like Saudi Arabia selling the Palestinians totally down the river. Or, uh, or if I'm surprised, uh, it could look like the Saudi Arabians compelling a political change in Israel by offering a deal so good, but conditioned mm. change vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians that not only does Netanyahu have to ditch the nut jobs and make a, make a deal with the center who currently boycotts him, but is so profound that it causes the center and left to drop their boycott of Netanyahu. Do we need Jared Kushner to come back and, uh, and make that shittick? <laughs> I, I kind of... I. Uh... He tried. I mean, he, he, for matchmaker, he, he got two billion dollars. You know, he got a two billion dollar, you know, kiss goodbye from the Saudis for his hedge fund. You know, is really obviously they're still friendly with him. Uh, let me just say that stranger things have happened in history, though not yeah. much stranger. Yeah, I mean, I, I take any 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 interlocutor, you know, if he, if if he could bring a deal like that. And is that a is that bubbling under the surface right now in your mind? In your in your experience, I gotta say there are rumors. There, are there is more than rumors that something is right. happening. It's being denied by everyone. Um, well, that's a good sign. Uh, <laughs> what the denials may be the best indication. Exactly. That's that's usually a good sign. Well, well, maybe we'll close this podcast on a note of hope that 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 could could happen. Certainly, um, so, you know, that that's possible. Look. Didn't the Chinese just broker a, some sort of a rapprochement between the the Saudis and the Iranians? They, they are decades, decades long Shia Sunni 
uh, fight uh, has come to an end for the moment, and uh, they're they're going to exchange some ambassadors. I mean, isn't that happening? I mean, isn't could this be part of some sort of general, you know, um, uh, Mid East uh, realignment? Uh, first, you get the Saudis and the Iranians together, and then once that's happened, the the Iranians are somewhat neutralized because they certainly wouldn't have made a deal with Saudi Arabia if Saudi Arabia has you know ha has some sort of a pro Israeli stance going on. Is that possible? Um, well, of course, it's true that the Chinese did that. That was, um, at the time, seen as indication that the Saudis have given up on the Israel-slash-U.S. Uh, although, sure, it could work the other way as well. That would require something of an Iranian acquiescence to, you know. Yeah, exactly. Which is hard to see right now, certainly with uh, this government. But, um I mean, you know, well, it is hard to see, but they they have to look around at what happened, you know, two years ago with the youth rebellion and the chance of, you know, death to Khomeini or death to whatever his name is. Uh, how do you pronounce the, the current leader? Khomeini. Yeah, thank you. Death, death well, I, I think, but notice you know, they have to look regime at is still standing. I know it's still standing, but it's a it's, it's it's a rump regime. It's weakened. It's poor. There's a drought. The kids aren't working. The middle class is alienated. You know, the, the the women are disaffected. It's not a happy place. I mean, they know that. They have to look around. And, you know, the only way they can keep the repression going is by executing people. You know, if you speak your mind and you're a soccer star, they're going to kill you, throw you in jail. I mean, they're, well, they let, let know. Let me ask you a question. Well, let me ask you a question because I used to be a journalist. How much does the Iranian regime care about the unhappiness of the people and the poverty and the bad karma? If they continue to rule, um, I would say that th that they care. I would say that they're not they're not idiots. They're not completely stupid. They have children who are reporting this is not working. They have younger people that they're in touch with that that are disaffected and miserable. Um, yes, it could be North Korea, but it could also be that they're not. And so um, you don't know. You just don't know. You know, I, mean, I wouldn't underestimate their cynicism. Percent of the people are uh, under under thirty or something in Iran. It's a very young population. They, oh, they may see the, the regime in Iran does not have majority support. That's clear. I know. Exactly. But neither do they seek it. I think we shouldn't underestimate their cynicism, lack of patriotism, and utilitarianism when it comes to just staying in power. Also, uh, Islamic <laughs> fanaticism. I won't. I won't underestimate anything that they that that, that they do. Okay. Um, that 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 that's it. Uh, great to talk to you. Uh, it's so informative. Your insight into the Middle East and Israel is is just in my mind, you know, just extraordinary. Your objectivity, your intelligence, your insight. Thank you so Thank much. You're a great interviewer. Okay. Listeners. Thanks again for tuning in to Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Your input is valuable to us, and we'd really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at ootbwithjrusso at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, ootbwithjrusso. Listeners, believe it or not, we're on Instagram. Please follow us at ootbwithjrusso on Instagram. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.